One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Series 2 of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me, hello. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and I write the Ask Annalisa column in The Guardian each Saturday. Every week, when researching the column, I get to speak to some amazing specialists. And this podcast allows me to go into more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this podcast, so if you'd like to support us so that we can make more, you can share it widely... If you'd like to make a one-off donation, you can follow the link in the description of this episode, which will take you to the ACAST supporter page. And if you'd like to listen ad-free, head over to my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri, where you can become a supporter. What is addiction? It's a word that's bandied about and often misused. True addiction is a compulsion. In this episode, I talk to Rebecca Harris, a systemic psychotherapist and manager at the National Problem Gambling Clinic, the Club Drug Clinic and the National Centre for Gaming Disorders. She works at the Central and Northwest NHS Foundation Trust in London and is one of my go-to specialists on addiction. I ask her what addiction actually is, what signs to look out for if you're worried you or someone you know might be addicted and what you can do about it. Becky, you and I have talked quite a few times over the years, usually parents who are worried about their children being addicted to something or other. And often after talking to you, we find out that actually they're not addicted. So my first question to you is, what are the markers of addiction and how can we find out if someone we love or maybe even ourselves are really addicted to something, be it food or drugs or gaming or whatever? Okay, well... I mean, there are a few criteria that people sort of agree on that are indications of, of addiction. So they would be carrying on with a behaviour or a, using a substance even when there are clear negative consequences. So I suppose if that was alcohol, say, you know, that, that might be the person who regularly wakes up not remembering what they've done the night before or, you know, the last person at the party after the party's kind of ended, they're still there partying. So if that carries on, I suppose that's quite a clear sign that something's not right. And then there's other sort of signs like, you know, if you miss other things because you're busy doing the drug or, you know, playing the computer game or whatever it is that is your thing. Withdrawal symptoms, which, you know, we, we're all, I guess, familiar with the idea of physical withdrawal symptoms. So if somebody's using heroin or an opioid drug, then obviously there are very strong physical withdrawals. But alcohol also has really quite dangerous physical withdrawals. But then, you know, there might be psychological withdrawals for, for people who are using something that's not physically addictive, but they might get really strong cravings or they might really kind of desperately feel agitated or kind of anxious if they're not doing the thing. I mean, there are other ones. There's like having to do more and more to get the same result and not being able to stop or control it, even if you try to. Those are some of the kind of recognised signs of addiction. If someone were listening to this and their child is gaming, I think we spoke about a problem quite recently about this. As I said, quite often they'll say, you know, my child is addicted to gaming. It's a word that's thrown about quite a lot. What might we say to them to sort of reassure them or, or you know, make them think, actually, my child needs help? So well, from what you've said, I'm guessing, you know, if you call them down to dinner they would come, that would be a 
good sign. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, gaming and just general internet use is interesting because I think it's so new and it is so compulsive that we all worry about it, I think. You know, we all worry about our own use. We're all prone to kind of go, I'm addicted to my phone. It's it's really a sort of common anxiety, I think, for a lot of people. But yeah, like for the children we see, I think if they're still going to school, that's a good sign. If they have the opportunity to do something with friends or or someone asks them to do something and they're happy to do it, that's a good sign. It's when everything else is kind of put to one side because the gaming is so compelling and compulsive. You know, the children we're seeing, often there has been a kind of social difficulty at school or there's been something that's made it hard for them to interact. And obviously lockdown was difficult because a lot of people were at home all the time. But if if it's a child that's been able to go from lockdown back to school and some level of interaction, but they're also doing a lot of gaming, that isn't necessarily something to worry about. Obviously with drugs, that's slightly different, isn't it? Because I'm guessing most people would say any drug use is not something that they would want their loved ones to do. You know, there is there is a degree of drug use which a lot of people may recreationally use drugs and it doesn't cause them any significant harm and they're quite happy and it doesn't really have any major impact. I suppose the thing with drugs is that, you know, there's always a risk in terms of health. Any drug use, you know, even, you know, again, we've all heard the story of people who, you know, use their first ecstasy tab and then die. So I think those sort of really frightening stories are very much out there for parents. But that's not to say that any drug use at all is going to necessarily be dangerous or problematic it's sort of you know that's the problem I suppose it's unpredictable so that could happen but equally people's children might be using some drugs and they wouldn't even know and they'd grow up and stop and the parent would never have known yeah I mean obviously with illegal drugs they are illegal um they are illegal yes (laughs) so you know that that is that is also like a major worry yeah but going back to the addiction thing the sort of people you see Do they refer themselves as the doctor referred them? I mean, how do they present? A real mixture. So I also work in the the National Problem Gambling Clinic and a Mm. lot of people with a gambling addiction will refer themselves because it's so hideous and it's so consuming. People's lives are literally ruined by it. So people often will reach a point with gambling where they do refer themselves for help because they're desperate for help. With gaming, it's interesting because the majority of our people that we're seeing are are younger, they tend not to refer themselves. I mean, there is a thing with an addiction that it it takes a while for people to acknowledge that there's there's a problem. You know, with people under the age of 18, I think it's quite rare for them to actually say, I'm not in control of this and I need help. So we haven't seen many young gamers refer themselves. We have seen a few older gamers. So people in their 20s and even 30s refer themselves. And with drugs, yeah, quite quite often people will refer themselves, but but equally, you know, anyone will refer. So it could be a GP. With gaming, it's often a parent. With gambling, we we get a lot of partners and family members ringing up, but because that's an adult service, they can't actually refer the person. They have to encourage the person to refer themselves. Yeah, sure. Or you know, other professionals, mental health teams, charities, loads of different places. Gambling, I think, if I'm correct, you said is a real gambling addiction. It's a yeah. is a real growth area. Yeah, it's believed to be. I mean, there's there's been various prevalent studies, which I think we're still waiting for the the independent kind of really conclusive prevalent study. But there have been a few recently. Actually, the, I think the most recent ones seem to say that it's been kind of steady in terms of problem gambling. It's been steady for the last few years. But mm. when you see people, what do they tend to say to you? Just generally, any of the people that you see in clinic, do they have like a a common phrase that they use? What do they say? See, I think it really it's really different depending on what it is that they've got the problem with. I mean, one thing I always remember, I, I don't currently work with heroin or opioids at, at the moment, but I did at one point work in a community drug service doing therapy mm-hmm. where people were being kind of withdrawn. So, you know, if you if you're addicted to heroin... Typically what will happen if you go into a drug service is that you'll get kind of transferred over onto a substitute medication like methadone. Yeah. You know, if you're keen to come off, which everyone hopes people are, and then you're gradually kind of your dose is reduced until you don't have it at all. And it's very common, I found, for people who are reducing off that 
medicine to say my feelings are coming back. Mm. And I always thought that was really interesting because I think people using those kinds of drugs are often, if not always, doing it to kind of cover up stuff. Well, what's something that I learned, which really changed the way I think of addiction, is I think we can have a sneery attitude to people addicted. Oh, you should just try harder or whatever. There's a weakness. Mm -hmm. But I've learned that, and I don't know if you agree with this, but addiction is often about going away from pain rather than towards pleasure. And that really changed the way I thought about it, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, again, with those kind of opioid-type drugs, which is like an anaesthetic. And I don't think I've ever met anyone who's using those sorts of drugs who's not doing it because of some terrible experience they've had. Or I do think most addiction is a type of coping mechanism. That's always the way I look at it. With gaming, we've talked about... I mean, I know myself, if things get too scary... Even if I'm watching the telly, so I'm already on one screen, the thing I can't bear suspense or they're right. scary on the telly. But if we're watching it and there's a sort of a segment, I go on my phone because yeah. it's something controllable and it's a small screen and I go on something that I know I like. And, you know, I do play some computer games and I find that my use of them augments when I'm stressed because it's about controlling a smaller world. I guess it's a bit like when certain things like games that people used to play or I've spoken to quite a lot of modellers as in, you know, people who make like model railways or villages or even dolls houses. And it's about recreating a different world. And I think uh, gaming is a lot like that. What do gamers who are, are referred to you or refer themselves, do they tend to say anything in particular about what it does for them? I'm trying to think because I don't work as directly with the gamers. I've, I've worked more with the parents. So that's interesting. You work with the parents. So how mm. can you how can you help the parents to help the children? Actually, the families have often responded really well to just a bit of input because it's a lot to do with communication. So, you know, often these are really caring parents. I think what's kind of gone wrong for them is that the child's just kind of gone off into their room, into this world. They've got their headphones on. They're not looking at them. They're talking to people across the world and they're not coming out for dinner. You know, if you can just work with them a little bit so that they're in the same room and they're having a bit of a conversation, that seems to make a huge difference. So it's just about kind of bringing people back together a little bit, helping the parents to understand what the game is doing for the child. And, you know, often they do understand that, but they don't know how to change it. Well, I think that from my sort of anecdotal experience and professionally from the letters that I've got, talking specifically about anything that's online, some parents, the thing that they often say to me is, I don't really understand what they're doing. And so not only is it super frightening, but there's no sort of common ground there. And You know, yeah. one of the things I say to them sometimes is try and get to know the game and maybe, you know, have this sort of bridge between you where you can start talking so it doesn't become so terrifying. I mean, obviously, some parents do do that and it's still their child is they feel kind of lost to them. I talked about this with someone else in the teenage podcast in season one about what's going on with the teenage brain, which is that they're often trying to separate out. Mm. And, you know, if they live not in a city, it might not be quite so easy for them to see friends face to face. So this is a way of them connecting and doing their own thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it is. I also, I'm really interested in this from a family therapy point of view, because I think, you know, if you if you take that model of teenagers separating out and rebelling and going off, and these teenagers, they're doing that, but they're doing it within the house. So they aren't actually leaving. They, they're kind of leaving, but they're leaving in a really safe way because they're still at home and their parents can still see them. Yes, I suppose, obviously, there was a tragic case a few years ago of a, of a, a young boy who did go meet someone and was killed. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of the awful worry. And the mother was very, Absolutely. very sort of connected there and mm. did everything she could and was really tragic. But I think that that is the worry, isn't it? It's just that, you know, who are they talking to because it's unseen, unknown. Yeah, that is absolutely. And there's also, I think, a kind of growing concern about grooming and there's all sorts of concerns about things that could happen online with who who people are talking to. So I suppose that I, I remember very well that case you're talking about and I know the mother did really do her best, but I suppose as much as possible, that's about trying to talk to your child about protecting themselves and realising that not everybody's telling you the truth we talk a little bit about why people get addicted to whatever it is they get addicted to but 
Why do people get addicted to things and some people don't? Like some people say I've got a really addictive personality. What does that mean? Well, there is a genetic component to addiction, which is a, a kind of, it's a known thing. But there's lots and lots of sort of discussion about this. Why do some people get addicted? And I think there there was a belief that, you know, anybody could get addicted. You, you know, I remember when I was growing up in the 80s, it was, the idea was, you know, the heroin screws you up ads and like, you you know, you try it once and that's it. Your whole life is over. But that that clearly isn't true. So I think, yeah, there's a genetic component, but there's a lot to do with your your experiences and you know what you were saying before about whether you're using it to kind of numb something or whether it's it's serving a function for you you know it, it could be early life experiences a lot of exposure to uh, some form of of use as a way of kind of coping some people do call it an illness some people don't but there's definitely kind of people have an underlying vulnerability to rely on something is there anything that that predisposes them to a certain type of addiction, i.e. drugs or sex or food or gaming. Mm. Nothing terrifies me more than gambling. I mean, I've done the lottery about mm. twice my whole life, and that's like £2.50 or something now. But I could never gamble, and so I find it really hard to understand people who do. And I can only think I just don't have that in me. Yeah. Um, but I do like food and sometimes eat it as a comfort. Mm. So... Mm-hmm. That wanting to sound flippant, if you met someone and had to guess their addiction, could you? <laughs> I've got a colleague who does do that, actually. <laughs> she, she prides herself on being able to do that. And I did. I spoke about she? this quite recently. Um, I don't know. But yeah, there are definitely, I, I do think about this a lot. And I don't feel like I've kind of got there yet. But certainly I've spoken about sort of opioid and heroin addiction. And I, and I think those are definitely people that just really don't want to go there. That are, mm. They're people that are, can't really handle thinking about the things yeah or they've or they've never been taught how to or never been listened to yeah so. or they yeah yeah it could be that or they you know they could have just I mean some of the stories are really genuinely horrendous and you think of course you're going to need some way of managing that you can't mm. just kind of go on with your life happily but then other people have also had horrendous experiences and and don't use that as a as a way of coping so in the club drug clinic which is one of the services I work in that that's set up to work with kind of the newer end of drugs so not kind of crack and heroin but things like ketamine and crystal meth and methadrone and something called GHB so sort of new end drugs and a lot of the people that we see there are doing something called chemsex which is men having sex with other men while using usually crystal meth and GHB and those people often also have a a kind of traumatic history. There might be some sort of issues around sexuality or abuse in their past. And that quite often they seem to be drawn into this world of almost slightly reenacting sometimes quite abusive situations while using drugs. So that's a completely different way of kind of handling something that's gone before. And what's interesting about those drugs is they're not something you use every day. They're there's things that you would use for a few days in a row and then stop mm. and then start again. I mean, some people do it every day, but they're stimulants mostly. And obviously the people you work with are addicted to this. It's not just every now and again that they do it. Yeah, exactly. Although, I mean, with those, it's interesting because GHB is physically addictive and very dangerous, but crystal meth is not something that your body kind of becomes accustomed to and can't do without so you can sort of stop and start and some people will come in you know you're asking about people self-referring some people will refer for help with crystal meth after using it twice because they just think i don't like the way this is going do you mean physically addictive or physically physically right but it could be psychologically addictive yeah absolutely and i think there is a thing you know you hear people talking about you're always trying to get back that incredible first experience that you had you know which you can never quite relive that yeah you've talked about physical and psychological addiction what's the difference so physical addiction is certain substances your body will kind of process them in a way where it it sort of starts to need them in order to carry on functioning normally and so if you stop using that substance uh, in the case of something like heroin you'll feel terribly ill but in the case of alcohol and this ghb this drug it's actually really dangerous you could have seizures you know, you have to be managed to stop rather than you have to sort of cut down first and then 
you know, really make sure you're doing it very safely because mm. pe- people can die from just suddenly stopping if they if their body has become physically dependent on that substance and psychologically addicted it just because it makes you feel good and it helps you cope in certain situations helps you cope you're thinking about it you're craving it you don't feel quite right without it you might feel anxious or sort of agitated or kind of just not at ease unless you're doing it or you're anticipating it i mean yeah i I was speaking once to a professor of addiction about someone who described their alcohol use to me and i was saying well he's obviously not uh, dependent because he's only doing these sort of he, he binges like once every six weeks mm. so uh, and she said no I that is dependent because every six weeks he's doing this massive binge so he you know he clearly needs it What do we know about what's going on in the brain when people are having a substance I mean I often read about dopamine receptors and Dopamine is is a hormone that gives you feelings of sort of pleasure and euphoria. So there are certain reward centers in your brain. Those are triggered by the behavior of the substance. So they trigger dopamine in those reward centers and then you start to feel good. That's what dopamine is. I mean, we can have dopamine release when something makes us feel good. It could be anything from, I don't know, having a lovely bath or seeing a person you love. Yeah. But if we introduce something like drugs or gaming or gambling, etc. that sort of, not artificially releases it because it's actually happening, but that becomes <clears throat> the thing that we rely on to feel good. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, you, you know, if you're using something else to activate those circuits, which would be activated by a normal activity, but if this other thing comes in to change the circuits, then the, the actual sort of neural connections start to change. And, and so then you're relying on that thing. If you don't have it, then, you know, as it wears off, you feel flat or depressed. Um, You start to kind of anticipate it and it starts to become harder to feel pleasure without that kind of stimulus. Mm. And is that a physical addiction or psychological addiction if it's in your brain? Well, that's the that's the kind of psychological end of. I mean, though it's physical in terms of the reward centers, it's not it's not dangerous like you can't stop doing it. So let's talk about treatment because you've spoken about the possible whys and wherefores, but how do you help people overcome their addictions? I'm guessing it depends what the addiction is, but perhaps you could talk us through the various ones that you work with and what you do to help them. I mean, the two kind of main ways of of working with addictions psychologically, uh, CBT is a a big one. So CBT is cognitive behavioural therapy. In layman terms, it's about looking at people's thoughts and feelings and helping people kind of change the way they approach something understanding the link between the thoughts and the feelings and changing their behavior in order to change their thinking in order to change the way they're feeling and kind of really address a problem so it's really useful for things called behavioral addiction so gambling and gaming would be examples of that so people you know there are there are established programs that we use therapists work with clients to sort of help them come at the gambling understand kind of what the triggers are what causes cravings what the risk areas are those sorts of things so if i came in and i said to you becky i've got a gambling habit what might be the first question you ask me we try and get a sense of, of how big a problem it is. So how long has it been going on? How much are you gambling? Are you able to control it? Do other people around you see a problem? Yeah, how much are you spending? Has it got you in trouble? But And then what? I mean, how would you introduce CBT? Or how might you help me? So the first thing we would do is, the good thing about gambling is that you can kind of block it in a way that you can't always so easily block other things. So there are lots of tools now in existence to stop people gambling. So you can block gambling sites on your phone. You can ask your bank in a lot of cases to block gambling sites so you actually can't physically pay them. You can ask to be self-excluded from bookmakers. So that's that's the very first thing that should happen when people say I've got a gambling problem that somebody helps them get get all those blocks in and that then gives you a bit of a break from the kind of almost the thought you know you can you can have the thought to gamble but if you can't physically gamble then you can't do it and that just gives you that little break to start to come back to normal so that would be a first sort of big thing but then how would the CBT come in how would you 
because it doesn't really get rid of the reason why I'm gambling. Interestingly, not everybody who gambles needs to kind of think about the the deep underlying stuff. I mean, quite often it's been a family experience that they had when they were young, like they might have seen their grandparents gambling or they might have gone to arcades with their family. So often is quite a sort of nice, cosy thing for people. It doesn't necessarily get associated with trauma. In some cases it does. Mm-hmm. But but because it's a behavioural addiction, actually changing your behaviour is, is really helpful. So a, a lot of the work is helping people just to stop doing it. And then if they want to, they can look at the causes underneath. But they don't actually have to do that to be able to control it, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. If we're looking at other types of addiction, there's an intervention called motivational interviewing, which um, most drug services use, drug and alcohol services. And that's about kind of working with people to help them look at kind of pros and cons of doing the behavior and kind of work work to gather motivation to stop. And one thing I think that I, I suppose I, I really want to mention is that you know it probably often looks quite easy from the outside if you look at someone and you think well clearly that behavior or that addiction or that drinking or whatever it is is really making your life much worse and you need to just stop Mm. but it's much harder to stop than I think people always realize oh for sure so you know even when you understand why you should and a lot of the the work that's done in kind of called key work when so not necessarily therapy, but the, the kind of first interventions that people have in a, in a lot of treatment services is about kind of looking at why you should stop and, and working on your own motivation to do it. But it's like a, a real job for people. I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's really hard. If, you're, if we've said that, you know, often it's about going away from a negative feeling and they're used to it, even though this addiction may be harming them, it's kind of what they know. So to actually change and maybe look at something that they've been running away from is really painful. Taking another behavioural addiction like gaming, how might you start helping people with that? So again, it's it's a similar kind of thing. I mean, with the younger age group, I think what we're learning is that it does help to work with the families because quite often that young person, as I said, isn't hugely motivated themselves. So we are often looking to just improve things with the families and just change the balance a little bit so that gaming isn't everything and people are beginning to engage in other activities. And there's a similar thing to kind of take a step away from it and and get some air in there. How would you do that though? How would you introduce other activities if somebody's got claw hands because they've been playing all day well through talking therapy we do a lot of group work kind of encouraging people to think about other things they like doing there there normally is something else they like doing Mm. a lot of the kids we work with are really creative and artistic interestingly so often a thing they like doing is art Mm. but you know there's sports they another thing that that we've seen is a lot of people come from background of being really sporty or really very good at at something and then something's happened and they've kind of looked to the online gaming world to, to do well at something else. So maybe sort of sitting down and talking, I'm just thinking about questions that families could ask themselves, like, you know, when did it start? What did they like doing? What might have happened to tip them? I mean, again, we're talking about addiction here, not just, you know, teenagers or young people who like occasionally playing games. So maybe kind of think about that rather than... because. Am I right in thinking if somebody is really addicted, just telling them to stop or banning them? Is it really going to work? No, it's very, 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 very difficult. And it's also, I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge that it's hard for families to have those conversations with teenagers, certainly. So, you know, if you're the parent of a teenager and you're trying to get them to engage in other activities and do the things they used to like doing, you know, you've already got all that dynamic of being the parent of a teenager which makes mm. those conversations quite hard. If you're somebody working objectively in a clinic, you've formed a kind of therapeutic relationship, it's much easier to have those conversations about what else people like to do and what else they could do that, that isn't gaming. We very much, with gaming, don't work to, towards kind of complete abstinence because that's not realistic and it's, it's not going to encourage very many people to engage with us unless somebody really wants to not game at all. Mm. We would understand that there's going to be some gaming in their life. It's just about getting it into perspective along with other things. So what kind of parameters would you give them? Say X amount of time a day? Yeah, we don't really work in terms of time. It's it's about what feels okay to 
them and the people around them I think yeah how do they know that though if they've already become addicted how would they know what feels okay well then you know every every activity they do that isn't gaming is a good thing and then to sort of build on that until there are more of those and I I think with something like gaming that's so immersive once you've started to do something out of it then it becomes easier to add in more things out of it but if Mm. all you're doing is staying in your room and gaming you know then doing one other thing is a great achievement. So diluting it a bit. Yeah, exactly. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We've talked about CBT and that often... It varies, I know, but it can help you look at how and why you do things. I know that in addiction, it might be slightly different. But what other type of therapies might you use to help people with their addictions? All sorts of therapies are used. So my background is systemic psychotherapy, which is it's what people who do family and couple therapy are normally trained in. So it's all about kind of other people around you. But you can do it with individuals, but it's just it's it's sort of philosophically taking in the idea that we're always in connection with other people. But you can also work with those other people. I've done that a lot with addictions. But also, you know, there's psychodynamic therapy, which is a lot looking at the kind of the childhood and the underlying causes that may have caused someone to sort of need these addictions in the first place. Trauma-informed care is a really big thing coming up in mental health, but it's certainly relevant to addiction because there's so much trauma in the background. But, you know, any therapy you can think of really is is used with addiction. But I think... One key thing is to take things at the right pace. So, you know, these people, they tend to be vulnerable to needing something to fall back on. And you do Mm -hmm. have to work carefully to make sure you're not kind of triggering too much and people end up kind of falling back into addiction to handle what comes up. Now, obviously, that's something you're trained in. Do you have to see a specialist if you're addicted? A lot of non-specialist therapists, I think, are a bit wary of working with addictions. 
maybe for that reason. It can certainly be advisable. If someone's had a really long uh, experience with drugs or alcohol, you know, going into residential rehab is certainly a safe way to begin to kind of unpack stuff because you're really, you're looked after, you're somewhere safe, you're with other people who understand. Uh, it can be a very sort of open experience. But then a brief period of that with no follow-up isn't always that helpful. It does vary enormously, though. So how do you access help? GP is is always a first port of call. A GP should know all the local addiction services. So for for what you might call the kind of more familiar alcohol drugs, the sort of mainstream drugs, which are heroin and crack mainly, every area will have a local addiction services that's funded and the GP should be able to refer you there. Or you could just look them up online actually and, and call them. For more kind of unusual addictions so we we do know that gps aren't always familiar with what to do about gambling for example and gaming people are generally a bit freaked out about we have these national clinics so you know if people want to find treatment they can again google my services one's called the national problem gambling clinic and one's called the national center for gaming disorders but I don't think there is anywhere else that helps with gaming disorder at the moment, to be honest. But there are other gambling treatment services in local areas if people don't want to travel or do online work. You could put in something like gambling addiction treatment centre in wherever you live. And hopefully that would lead you to somewhere. But your GP, if you can, can often signpost you. And at the end of of this episode, we will be putting some useful links. I want to go back to the genetic component because I've heard about this quite a lot. And, you know, they'll say things like alcoholism ones in my family. Once I wrote a piece about, with drugs especially, it was quite important to understand your family history because if you're more predisposed to it, you might want to think twice before trying drugs. And that seemed a terribly kind of sensible approach. And I thought, well, how many people who are about to try drugs would ask themselves that? I don't really know. But how important is the genetic component and how do we know if we have it? I think it's very hard hard to know if you have it until you discover that you do have a problem. I mean, there are people who've got a direct family member who is addicted to something and, uh, you know, seem to be able to use drugs or alcohol to a certain extent and not fall into addiction. And there are other people who absolutely can't. I've also met people who never touch alcohol because they've seen it really devastate their families. Mm. It may be that they don't have that particular genetic vulnerability, but they do have the the experience of it. But equally, people who grow up around a lot of terrible alcoholism might then turn to alcohol themselves because it's a known thing that they've seen being done it's not straightforward i think but Mm. certainly you know there is this known genetic component and like with gambling often it's a grandparent doesn't even have to be a a sort of immediate first generation relative well i think with certain things if you grow up with it you normalize it and so you think it's okay until it's not okay but i suppose the, the the more dangerous thing about the genetic component is that it makes you more vulnerable to addiction so I suppose they're two sort of connected but separate things, aren't they? Because yeah. I, I know people who've grown up with parents that smoke and absolutely won't smoke. Uh, I was thinking about smoking. I, I think smoking is a good example. You know, I mean, I smoked for like eight years and even though I knew I wasn't meant to, and definitely for me it was a psychological crutch because I was quite shy and I remember I had my first cigarette after a, a fashion show and um, I was sitting next to this model and she offered me a cigarette. And I took it and that was my first cigarette and it helped me do something in social situations. And then I don't think I was ever physically addicted to it. I don't know. But I think that I was definitely psychologically addicted because, like I said, it helped smooth things over. And when I gave up, I remember thinking all the good times I've had, I had a cigarette in my hand. I had to make new memories. But my God, I'm glad I gave up. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. I did that with hypnotism. What do you think about oh, that? Really? I know it works for some people really well, with, with smoking particularly. I have never heard about it working for anything else. Some people try and do it for overeating. I, I, again, haven't heard that much, but smoking is something that you do hear real success stories with. Yeah, no, I also tried it for overeating, and I remember cramming a, what was called a marathon bar into my mouth before <laughs> I went in, and it just, it just didn't last really, because I think for that it didn't look at the root causes. So The root causes thing is really interesting, because I do think to... 
to change those kinds of, you know, when you are doing something as a coping strategy, if you don't do something with the root causes, the chances of not doing it for a long time are less. Less chance of success. Yeah, I think if, you know, if you're, if you've had the habit for years and years of kind of numbing out your feelings or not really going there but using some way of kind of making it more bearable if you then stop doing that thing but you don't deal with what's underneath Mm. you're likely to to need that coping strategy again at some point or get another one or get another one yeah yeah definitely oh and that's the other thing you hear about a lot of people becoming then kind of exercise addicts Mm. kind of something to excess and they'll say i that's just how I am. Yeah, they, I've heard that. But I also think it's it's all about trying to get control of something or trying to get on top of something. And I suppose it's trying to work out what that is that's kind of the key. Yeah, or, or trying to kind of be very engaged in something else so you don't have to sort of sit still and then think. And also there's certain things like, you know, with food, you can't really give up food. Mm. So you're constantly having to recalibrate and stay within a certain sort of parameter I guess this is why kind of exclusion diets why people do certain things like no carbs or no this because they feel there's something that they can exclude but they can eat something else you know with things like smoking and drugs and gambling I mean obviously it's very very hard if you're addicted but you can cut it out you don't have to constantly have just a bit of it because that would be really hard wouldn't it if you had to have like a bit of drugs every day or a bit of alcohol yeah Absolutely. I mean, it is, I suppose with alcohol, what's very hard is that it's so ingrained in our sort of social lives and our, you know, our kind of expectations of daily life, definitely in this country. If you're trying to meet new friends or you're trying to kind of improve your social life because you spent 20 years drinking, that's where places like AA are very good because you can go and find other people who are in the same situation and really can't just kind of go out with people from work to the pub because that's just you know it can be really difficult it is one of the more socially accepted addictions and i know that sometimes if if someone's not drinking other people are like oh go on you have a really boring evening it's so acceptable it's so acceptable it really is and i think that you know i've got friends who are ex-alcoholics it's very interesting going out with them they have to say i'm an ex-alcoholic and to for people to stop having a go at them um it's almost like they have to explain you know i'm What's the terminology? Are you an ex-addict or are you always an addict? Anyone who's going to AA or equivalent would say, I'm an addict. They would always be in recovery. They would never have recovered. Mm. I think that way of thinking is quite ingrained because I think if you have a vulnerability to a certain thing, it's very risky to do that thing again. On the other hand, I, I know people whose problem was heroin who can drink quite happily and it's not an issue for them. And I know other people whose problem with her- was heroin who... Don't do anything at all because, you know, the the thinking is if you try one substance, you're kind of opening yourself up to risk. I didn't realise that with alcohol, you couldn't just stop. No, I know. You absolutely can't. It's incredibly dangerous. Really? What happened? Yeah. You said you can have like seizures and stuff. Yeah, you can have seizures and people can die. So God, I had no idea. Yeah, it's not very well known. I remember being really shocked when I first found out. You have to drunk daily and you'll know if you have uh, withdrawal symptoms like shakes or dts or what are dts delirium tremens but if you if you physically get yeah shakes or kind of withdrawal symptoms where you you don't feel right until you drink another right glass of that would be a sign that your body that would be a sign that you should not just stop. just go cold turkey yeah Absolutely. So, Becky, do you have any advice for people who live with people or have them in their world who they think might be addicted or who have addiction and are being treated? Because they need support too. Yeah. And most addiction services would have someone who could support those people. But also any therapist should be able to help those people. I think there are certain things that are quite common experiences. I mean, I think a lot of people find that alongside addiction comes being lied to and Mm. that's really difficult often for partners particularly for partners because you know the the first time you have the conversation your partner might be very like yes you're right I have got a problem I'm going to do something about it and then they do something about it and then you find out x weeks or months down the line that actually they have been using again but they didn't tell you And that can be a cycle that goes on for a really long time. So there are also kind of bits of the AA 
fellowship called Al-Anon, which are specifically to work with family members. Mm -hmm. And then also for parents of someone older who's been using a drug or alcohol or gambling for a really long time, it can be very hard for parents to kind of let go of that. And I really respect that because... You know, it's it's really hard to sort of take that chance of, of letting your child do something that's really harmful for themselves and not feel like you constantly want to do whatever it is you can do to help. So, I mean, in terms of what they can do, have the conversations. Sometimes those are really helpful. Sometimes, you know, if it's the first time you've had that conversation, it can be a relief, I think, quite often for someone who's got an addiction to hear somebody else tell them that they can see it too. And that can prompt them to go and get some help. If it's years down the line, I think the most important thing then is for that family member to go and get some help for themselves and think about, are they okay to stay in this situation? Is there something they can do for themselves to make their life easier? Because they can become kind of almost prisoners of someone else's addiction. Yes. And I think also there's a lot of secrecy and shame around addiction. And so people don't ask for support or they don't want to. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it sounds like such a cliche, but having a support network and saying to them, I really need help. Because I guess if you love a person and they have an addiction, you must have quite a lot of conflicting feelings. You know, if you you talked about being lied to, you must have trust issues. You might have a lot of anger. Yeah. And I'm guessing it's not really helpful to project that onto the person who's addicted. So you need your own space and support. But I mean, obviously, there might come a time where that person just won't get help that you have to make your own choices. Yeah. And I think where my readers sometimes get stuck, what they say to me is, but it's an illness and I'm leaving someone who's ill. And I think that becomes really, really hard for them mm. because it feels so callous. But I think, well, if you're actually sacrificing your own life... And especially if there are children involved, you know, if it's if it's yeah. your life and your happiness, but also your children are constantly in this situation that's, that's so destructive. Absolutely. But I think that's just so hard. It's, it's one of those things that's so easy to say, but actually if you're in it, it's really difficult. I will be talking about at the end sort of some links to sort of start thinking about those people getting support for themselves. people do change that's another thing actually that's important to remember is it can take as many rehabs as it takes but people do get over these things and it's amazing and then you know people talk about you being the age you were when you first started using people I've, I've really seen people quite late in life just reach that point where they're able to stop well that's very heartening is there anything that normally precipitates that nobody seems to be able to say what has happened that's different but somehow they've just reached that stage. They're just, they're ready for it. Mm. So, I mean, sometimes people say, I've just, you know, I had enough. But obviously, what does that really mean? Mm. They were just ready for it for some reason at that point. Well, that's a good positive note to end on. Thank you so much to Becky for all her expertise. As I said in the conversation, but something I think is worth repeating, what made me look at addiction differently is when I learned that it's nearly always about going away from pain rather than towards pleasure. Although your first port of call, as Becky said, should be your GP, these websites may also be of benefit. We list the full links in the episode description. Becky works for the Club Drug Clinic, Anyone in England and Wales over the age of 13 can self-refer to the NHS Gambling Clinic. Ditto the National Centre for Gaming Disorders Clinic. Parent Zone is useful to help you navigate the online world and Taming Gaming tells you about the games themselves. It's always a good idea to be up to speed on what your child is playing. Talk to Frank is a good resource to find out about different drugs, their effects and the law. A brilliant book is The Drug Conversation, How to Talk to Your Children About Drugs by Dr. Owen Bowden-Jones. It's a great resource on drugs, their effects and so much more. ADFAM has information and support for families and friends of people with drug or alcohol problems. Alcoholics Anonymous, also known as the AA, is for anyone seeking help with an alcohol problem and Al-Anon is the website for those affected by others drinking. There's also lots of links on Mind UK and it tells you how to get in touch with your local NHS drug clinic. And finally, for gambling problems, there's Gamcare. All of these links are listed in our episode description. 
The series is produced by Hester Kent. The music is by Toby Dunham. And our artwork is by Low Cole. Follow us on social media, on Instagram, at Pocket Annalisa. You can read my Ask Annalisa Barbieri column in The Guardian magazine every Saturday. And we'd love to hear your suggestions for topics you'd like us to discuss on future podcasts. Please email us at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from today's episode, do please share it with someone else you think might find it useful. And it would mean a lot to us if you could give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening and do join us again. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in, so much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free, so if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.